I don't know if you know it or not, but there's only three weeks more for you to watch Friends. If any of you do that, uh, I, I hope that you prob- that's not really your value system, but if you're not into TV, I want you to know that it's one of the most popular sitcoms of all time. And the networks, uh, that they're just pushing, 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 and Friends is going to end actually on May 7th. After 10 years, it's gone for 10 years. What I want you to realize about, about Friends, I read an interesting editorial. And what, uh, what the Time editor, in fact, he's got a really hairy name, I'm not sure how to pronounce it right, it's, it's James Poniewasik, man. You got a James Poniewasik. You have to be an editor or a journalist for Time with a name like that. But James, as he thought about Friends, this is what he said about Friends, and I want you to listen. James says that the key to, to Friends is that it made the abnormal totally normal. And he describes the situation. Let me give you some of the situations that have been part of the 10 years of Friends. In Friends, an ex-wife marries her lesbian lover. Dads are exposed as cross-dressers and having affairs. There's a mom who commits suicide. And I want you to know that what James brings out in this Time article is that what was significant about Friends is that unlike Murphy Brown, remember when Murphy Brown had a baby out of wedlock and Dan Quayle had the audacity of saying that maybe it's not such a good idea for a single working mom not to have a husband in the home and the whole culture came in glued about that? Remember that? Some of you are too young to remember that, some of the kids that are here. But a lot of you, how many remember that? Raise your hand, okay? You know what's significant about friends? Those, this, those situations that I described were a, a guy, that, a man that was supposed to be a daddy, but now he's become a woman doesn't even make a stir on friends. And I want you to think about that. Because what's happened in our culture is the abnormal has now become normal. And what I want you to realize is that you live in a culture that is redefining what a marriage is, redefining what home life is, redefining what it means for people to live together. And what I want to do for the next few weeks is I have have a responsibility for you to think about how you're going to live. That's what I want to challenge you to do. What I want you to know is every single one of you sitting in this room are going to live your life. And you're going to live your life listening to certain kind of instruction. And what, what friends, and I want you to hear what James, this editor from Time, said. The common denominator in friends is that there's only one of those, those, only one of those friends that has a relatively normal home life. But this is something he had the deep insight to say about Generation X. The common theme throughout Friends is every one of those Generation X young people, Jennifer Aniston and all the guys that play those parts, throughout Friends, they feel something was really messed up in the way we were raised. Something was really messed up in the way we were raised, and we're afraid that we've been damaged about it. You know what Friends is about? It's about a bunch of Generation Xers that get together. And their home life and their marriages and their moms and dads messing up and not being faithful and living alternative lifestyles and me and other things, even friends knows that though it hardly makes a ripple in our culture, it makes a ripple in their lives. In fact, it makes it thought away in their lives. As you sit here today, a lot of you that are from Generation X, as you look back over your family of origin, you feel that you were hurt. You feel like you were damaged. And what I want to teach you, I want to teach you some of the reasons why that happened. And I want to teach you what we can do about it. And what I want you to do, I don't want you to get up and leave because no matter what family you might be from, you might be in your third or fourth marriage, 
You might have had homosexual relationships in the past. You might have, uh, you know, you might have been unfaithful in your, in your marriage. What I want you to know that in Jesus, there's hope. There's amazing grace. It's one of the themes that we've sung about today, the incredible grace of Jesus. But I also want you to know that I have a responsibility. The very first thing I want you to understand is that you live in a culture that now the authority, your authority that you're going to hear all about this week is you. You're the authority. Romantic, loving relationships develop on friends and any other sitcom. It also happens in our culture based upon you. In other words, if you hear the argument, I love this person. They make me feel alive. They make me feel fulfilled. They make me feel like, I've, I, like electricity is surging through my vein. And that's the reason why we join together. That's the argument in, in gay marriage. Because who's to say that if I love this person and they fulfill my personal needs, who has the right to say that it's wrong for us to join together? Because that's become the definition of marriage. We call it companionship marriage. In fact, if you want to use the psychological term, they call it companionate, which nobody ever heard of. You know, companionate marriage. The idea is this. It really developed out of the Romantic era, but about the 60s, about the 60s, people suddenly began to live out what was being taught in the arts, what was being taught like in the Romantic writings, is that the essence of what holds people together is your own love, your own sense of togetherness. Now, you say, well, what's different about that? Well, it used to be, in the not-too-distant past, that person got married, and the reason they had a public ceremony is because, because this is going to be a commitment that would generate children, and then those children would inherit your house and your land, and daddies would teach their sons, and their, and their, their, their sons especially, not so much their daughters, a vocation. And the old way of really getting marriage for centuries, hundreds of years, was it was because of society. And to preserve society. It was all connected with having, having kids. And it was all connected with having an environment where you'd be able to pass on your property. And what the 60s was a reaction to was a reaction of how rigid that could be. Like, for example, during the Victorian era, you would have a semblance of visible external social acceptability. And a man would, be, you know, would stay with his wife for a lifetime during the Victorian era. But he'd also have many mistresses. But the illegitimate children of his mistresses didn't influence his property. And so what the 60s did is react against all that. A major factor in that was contraceptives came along. And suddenly sex was divided from having kids. And your society is loathed from that. A lot of you don't even realize that. But you live in a society where you decide what a marriage is. You decide whether you have kids or not. You decide whether you end this relationship and move on to another one because the bottom line in your society's life is you. But what I want to ask is, do you think that's going to work? Because what you're really deciding is you're going to be God. And what I want to challenge you for the next few weeks is that I believe that marriage, the big debate is who gets to decide who defines marriage. And I want to present to you the alternative, the real alternative, and that is that I don't decide what a marriage is. And you don't decide what a marriage is. But God decides what a marriage is. I want you to turn to the book of Malachi. We're going to go back uh, right into the Old Testament. We're from a Judeo-Christian heritage. And when we turn to Ephesians 5 and it starts to talk about the home, the Apostle Paul, and we're going to get back to Ephesians in the next few weeks, but in order to really understand Ephesians, you need to go back to 400 years before Christ. And in Malachi chapter 2, 
Malachi, one of the last prophets before Jesus came, begins to talk to, to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. Let me set it up for you. The children of Israel went into 70 years of captivity. They were punished by the, their king, who was the Lord God of heaven, because they disobeyed the Lord. But now they've come back home. That small remnant has come back home. They're beginning to rebuild the temple. They're beginning to rebuild their lives. And yet the prophet Malachi begins his passage today by talking to people like me. Those that are responsible for teaching God's people. I want to pick it up with verse 7. It says, for the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge. This is Malachi chapter 2 verse 7. For the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth you should seek instruction. I want to share with you that I have an awesome responsibility, all the elders in our church do, because the responsibility of a daddy in God's family is to teach you your heavenly daddy's instructions. That was the role that Levite, the priest in the Old Testament, was a special Jewish tribe, and their responsibility was to make sure that all the young people, all the children, and all the moms and dads knew instruction from God. And what, the, what Malachi is telling us is that the lift of the priest ought to be a place where you can learn this isn't just knowledge generally, but the knowledge of God. It ought to be a place where you can come and ask instructions and, and how you point out the way to how you should live. He said, because you're a messenger of the Lord Almighty. What I want you to see is that the writer of Malachi, the prophet Malachi, assumes that there's a God that's really there. In a New Testament standpoint, what, what, the, what Paul would be telling you, just like Malachi, is there's not only God the Father there, there's not only Yahweh there, but there's Jesus there. The very first thing I want you to begin to ask yourself is, where are you going to get instructions from the fam, about your family? In other words, you live in a society. I, I'd encourage you to look at what friends produces. I'd encourage some of you to go into sociology. And find out what the social changes have actually done in our families. Find out what single homes. Go ahead. Look at, we've got tons of, of, of single families. We have tons of women raising children with another woman. We have tons of men doing that. Do the hard work. Find out by research what it really produced. Don't listen to Rosie O'Donnell. She's very biased. She already has an axe to grind. But I want to challenge you, you need to ask yourself, what's really going to happen? Because you're only going to get to do this one time, guys and girls, really, men and women. You're only going to get to live your life once. You can't afford just to buy what friends is telling you, buy what the popular media is telling you, and live your life based upon that basis, because you could wake up 20 years from now and you wasted it, you ruined it. You produce kids that are all messed up, it's just, and then it's going to be too late. It was like yesterday when I was meeting married an 18-year-old guy in college. Now I'm a grandfather. It's, it's my time of raising my four kids went like that. And that's what I want to challenge you. What, the, what my responsibility is, is to challenge you to think about an incredible creator who has a plan for you. And the big missing definer is God. I want you to listen to that. Listen to the debates in your culture. Listen to the writings. Listen to what your friends at school are saying. And ask yourself, does God have anything to do with this? I heard a, I heard a kid from the Middle East High School at the road the other day. Great kid. Really neat kid. Skilled speaker. But he said, in the present debate, we must separate what happens in society and what happens in our spiritual religious upbringing. 
Because those are two completely different spheres. And the idea is that we need to let people do whatever they want to out here in society. Because God doesn't really have anything to do with society. He has to do just with our personal lives and the way we live. Well, I got news for you that that's really not reality. It isn't reality. Those aren't completely separate spheres. God's the one that gave the government. God's the one that gave marriage. God's the one that determines it. I, I want to be the first to say, I want you to know that I don't expect unbelievers to listen to what I have to say or to believe me unless they respond to Jesus. But I want you to be really clear that God has everything to do with everything. You're breathing today because of him. Governments rule because of him. You live because of him. You can't ever eliminate God. And he's not just a God you make up. He's really there. Whether you believe it or not, doesn't make a blessed, you know, doesn't make any difference. My responsibility is not to teach you. I could teach you social sociology today. I could teach you psych today. I could, tell you, I could teach you very progressively and tell you why you need to be open up to alternative forms of marriage. There's tons of preachers. I read tons of, of theologians this week that were teaching exactly like that. But my responsibility today is not to teach you what society is saying and what the greatest minds supposedly are saying. And what I do want to say that as a 54-year-old guy, as I look at our world, it's not working, brothers and sisters. It is not working. AIDS. You live in a society that in California there's hundreds of actors in the porn industry that are scared to death because they might have AIDS and the whole porn industry might shut down. And living in the crazy society that's saying we need to really get medical procedures right here. You ever think how crazy that is? And nobody asks, maybe this isn't what sex is about. And maybe this isn't such a good idea. People die from this stuff. And that's a very blatant example where when we break God's commands and we break God's skillful design for the way we live, suddenly people start dying. And what I want to share is you don't just die physically. Some of you are dying emotionally. Some of you are dying spiritually. And my responsibility over the next several weeks is not to teach you what the atmosphere of your society. I want to teach you what God has to say about the marriage. And the very first thing I want you to begin to think about is your marriage is not about you. You see, if it's about you, then as soon as you are not having your needs met, you're going to be gone. You see, we live in a society where, like, if I fall in love with Mary and she's a beautiful, you know, 19-year-old and, you know, I like the way she looks and she makes me feel really strong, she makes me feel really, you know, respected by other men when I'm with her, so I marry her. And so we're coasting along and we're getting along really good. And, man, she's really, she's really enhancing my self-fulfillment. She is helping me to achieve my goals as a human individual. And I'm helping her to achieve her goals as a human individual. And we have a great companionate relationship. We're great companions. Then our marriage works. But let's suppose after about 12 years that she's really not a very good companion. She's not meeting my self-needs. She's not helping me to reach my internal goals for the development of my incredible Dave Wardson potential. And I meet somebody else, I meet someone else who help me, can help Dave Wardson reach his great ideals of what it means to be a Dave Wardson self in today's world, then according to that view of marriage, you're out of there. And that's what's happening to a whole bunch of you. You go through your life because you started your relationship, not because of God, but because of you. 
And I want to challenge you. The very first thing I want to teach you about your marriage is God defines what a marriage is. And your marriage is not about you. It's about him. Look what, what Malachi says. If we look at Malachi chapter 2 and verse two, 10. It says this. Have we not all one father? Did not one guy create it? This is the idea. Malachi is saying all of you have one daddy. And the responsibility of daddies is to guide you as a child. And so the very first thing you need to ask yourself is are you listening to your daddy? Janae called me up yesterday. She said, Dad, what do you think about this? I can't say, well, Janae, I, you know, do whatever you do. Fine, just do whatever you want to do. When Janae called me up from UT, even as a 20-year-old 20, 20 kid, and says, Dad, what do you think? I have to tell her. I have to guide her. That's what daddies do. And I want to challenge you. Some of you daddies need to start being daddies. Because there's an ultimate daddy. You daddies need to be connected with the ultimate daddy. And you need to be sure that what you're teaching your kids as an earthly daddy connects with what the heavenly daddy is saying. And if you don't have a godly daddy, some of you are sitting here don't have a godly daddy, you do have an ultimate God dad. So you can listen to him. I don't, you might have a dad that was messed up and totally away from the Lord. Well, today I'm telling you, you have a godly dad. He's God himself. If you've received Jesus as your savior. Second of all, it says here, God created you. And what that means is you didn't create yourself. You're not here by chance. You're not an extended monkey or a glorified monkey. You're the creator. The creator is incredible design. You're made in his image. You're made to reflect him. And then Malachi asks a very strategic question. In light of the fact that God is your daddy, and in light of the fact that God created you, then why are you cursing? The word profane. Why are you cursing the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? The very first thing Malachi wants you to understand is that your home life is built in your daddy in heaven's will and the creator's will. And your daddy in heaven says that marriage isn't a covenant. I want you to go back and think about covenant. It's a covenant means that there is a promise. There is a sacred holy vow that you make before God and you make it with someone else. In my own life, it happened when I was 20 years of age. On a cold Nebraska evening, I was in front of a church, and Mary was in front of the church, and God was present. And I made a promise. My own parents didn't make it. They were snowed in in New York. But Mary's brother helped out with a service, and a bunch of people gathered together from Dad's church in Broken Bow, Nebraska. And Mary and I entered into a covenant. What did we do? I made a promise to Mary to be a Christ-like leader, Lover and a one flesh lover. We're going to talk about what that means in the next several weeks. Mary made a promise to me to be my ally and to respect me and to be submissive to me. Yeah, Ephesians still talks like that because that's our daddy's plan. We're going to talk about why that's so. Now, I want to share with you that Mary and I have now been married almost 35 years. And as I look back over 35 years, there's been some times when I definitely have not met Mary's needs. I haven't fulfilled her. I haven't enhanced her. I haven't made her feel good. You can ask her. She, you know, there's times when she thought about splitting, especially when I was playing tennis with Dave Lowry more than I was spending time with her. And all of you ladies are going to go through that. You've been married a few years, and you know life's coasting along, and your husband just starts to act like a jerk. He's fishing and playing sports, and, and he's just really not meeting your companionate needs. Mary faced that. So will you. Did she leave? Why not? Because Mary made a promise. 
Mary made a promise. You see, Mary's relationship with me is not rooted in the way that I meet her needs. It's rooted in a promise that she made with her heavenly daddy. How about you? Do you understand what I do? I just said, you know, that you, you, like, you all want to get married in a church. And I want to share with you, the, I, I, right now I have three or four weddings and I'm working with, you know, premarital counseling. And I want to share with you, I love doing that. It's the, it's, I, I, I'll pastor forever just to meet with one married couple that's going to get married. I love doing that. The greatest counseling in the world. All of you want to do that. And you still want to do that. I, I, I was going to be a chemistry major. And when I was in the 60s in college, I wondered whether people would still be getting married. To be honest with you, I was in the 60s, the roaring 60s, really. And everyone was talking about there's not going to be a marriage. And I never dreamt in the 21st century, young people like yourself, a whole bunch of you that are sitting right here, you want to get married in church more than we did. But I want you to think about why that's so. What do you want to meet with pastors? It's not just to kind of put a nice religious thing on this. It's, that's the guts of it. You see, God's the real source of your promise. He's the one that designs this. And I want every one of you, if you're thinking about blowing your relationship apart, like so I want to talk really honestly. Some of you have, you didn't have anyone teach you like I'm teaching now. Or some of you wandered away from the way I'm teaching you now. And you are now in your fourth relationship. You say, well, what do I do now? I've blown it all. No, you haven't. Now's the time for you to listen to your heavenly daddy. Does that make sense? Like, I want you to know you're in a covenant of grace, that, we're, that we're in, you're in a church family. We're not going to condemn you because you're a divorce. We're not going to throw you out of the church. and We're not going to block you from the usefulness that God can use you. But I want you to know if you've been divorced, you should be more committed than ever to what I'm teaching this morning. It's time to keep covenant. And I want, us, I want us to pray, I want there to be a moving in the spirit. If somebody goes to Ellis County, I'd like it to be that there's community groups that go to the courtroom and they pray through the whole thing. Why don't you announce in church Sunday morning, just like we have a big public ceremony, why don't you announce in church, my marriage is caving in. Pray. Pray. I want us to get really serious about this. Could you know what? We get divorced just as much as, as this unbeliever. You know, the East Coast, remember the secular East Coast where I was raised? Big Manhattan, the Big Apple, where all the ungodly people live? You know what? They have a lower divorce rate than we do right here at the heart, the buckle on the Bible belt. And as a pastor teacher, I want Midlothian Bible Church, one of my dreams is the next several months is we're going to turn that around. And I want somebody to start thinking, okay, if we really believe in covenant, if we really believe that, we're, that we have relationship together, then how do we keep from breaking faith with one another? Do you see what it says? I want you to know, if I dissolve my relationship with Mary, and I tell you that she's not meeting my needs, and it's just a private thing, it's just about what I want, and just about what I feel, and that's what's more important, it's none of your business. How do you all feel about that? Is that true? Will I just... Do I have a right to do that? No, I want you to understand that. You see, the, that's what covenant means. You see, I'm connected with you. I'm not only connected with Mary. I'm not only connected with my kids, but I'm connected with you. And every one of you, when I talk about a pastor teacher doing that, you all understand, but every one of you is connected. 
And I want us to get really serious in our, I want us to unite in our community groups. I want us to hang in there. I want us to fight for faithfulness and relationship. I want to, I know that a lot of you are angry. I know that a lot of you have, have done this all of your life. Relationships have never worked out for you. So you cut and run as soon as things get tough. But I want you to realize we need to create a church family where it's not easy to cut and run. It takes work to have a marriage. It takes work to learn how to fight fair. It takes work how to, to learn how to overcome your anger. This isn't just like Pat works in construction. When I worked in construction, guys got angry, threw their, to- their, to- their tools in their truck, and took off in that right pet. Almost every week I saw guys do that. Marriage is not a construction site. It's too precious for that. You've got to learn how to fight. You've got to learn how to get somewhere in your fight. You've got to learn how to be angry and not make it cause you to run away and not make you curse and swear at each other and then beat up on one another and then end it. You say, what's going to make us do that? When you start realizing, here's me, here's my partner, here's God. What I do is about a covenant. The second thing the apostle, the, the, the great prophet says is Judah has broken faith. They've done a detestable thing. There's been a terrible thing done in Israel and Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. Well, how in the world did Judah do this? It says, as for the man who does this, who they've married, look what it says, they married the daughter of a foreign god. As for that man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tent of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Now listen to me as I close. I work with a whole bunch of you moms and dads. My wife Mary's awesome about this. I'll be nice to you. So if you come to me and say, hey, my son or daughter's married, you know, they're dating someone else and they want to start meeting together with you. One of the, you know, I'll say, oh, then that's great. You know, tell me what school they went to and tell me what's going on. If Mary spends any time at all with you, you know what she'll ask you? Where do they stand with Jesus? And I work with a whole bunch of you moms and dads. You let your kids go through a whole dating relationship. And if I ask you, where does your fiancé, where does your kid's fiancé stand with Jesus? You don't even know. Come on. Don't be scared. We need to get some moms and dads. Mary asked Courtney, who's married to Joel, the very first time she met her over at Mom and Dad Van Campton House, man, she was with Courtney for five minutes. And she said, Courtney, tell me about how you came to know Jesus as your Savior. Not in a mean way. Not in a judgmental way. And young people, I want you to realize, this isn't mean. It's the meaning of a marriage. Like, why shouldn't you marry an unbeliever? Why shouldn't you marry someone that's not connected with Jesus? Because you'll never achieve the purpose of what a marriage is supposed to be. That's why. Because what a marriage is, it's a reflection of God's relationship with you, of Christ's relationship with you. And if you're married to someone who could care less about Jesus, then you don't have a triangle that you might be heading toward Jesus. But if the person you're dating is heading away from Jesus, you might have great sex, you might have great companionship, but you're not going to have a biblical marriage. It just, because the point of this is the covenant that God has with you. So one of the very most important things we need to begin asking, are the people that we're relating to, that we're dating, that we're romantically falling in love with, do they know Jesus? And I want to give you guys courage as I close today. Brothers and sisters, listen. I know you live in a friend's atmosphere. 
I know that when you read ladies' home journals, you don't hear what I'm telling them. I know that Oprah's going to tell you, get in touch with your inner self, and you can listen to Dr. Phil, and talk about how great you are. I got news for you. You're not very great inside without Jesus. You take a journey inside your heart, and you live for yourself. You know what the very first family did? So, well, let you, Lest we get discouraged, the very first family, the son murdered his brother. Family started out broken. Family started out just like Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov with violence and murder and darkness. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus came because we murder and we're immoral. And Jesus died on the cross and stretched out his arms so that we could be forgiven. But I want you to know he rose again from the dead. And as I close today, Jesus rose again from the dead. So you can live a new marriage relationship. And the church family, I want you to start to think about this. I, we'll, just, we'll get to just the very first questions today, but I, I want you to look at your notes because I want you to be thinking about this. I wrote, this would be the very first thing. Number one, based upon the way you're living now in your relationships, who defined? I want all of you to work on this this week. because You don't have to listen to what I say at all. I want you to begin to think about where you're, go, you're going with your life. The first question I want every one of you to ask, and I want you, you can do this privately, and I want you to be really honest. Based upon the way you're living now in your relationships, who defines the meaning of love, commitment, and the meaning of your marriage. Where are you learning about relationships? Who are you listening to? Then I want you to ask yourself, what are some of the concrete ways that people could know from your relationship with your marriage partner that Jesus Christ is definitely raised from the dead and giving you strength in your marriage? Brothers and sisters, the next few weeks, what I want you to realize is Midlothian Bible Church is going to go nowhere unless we start making it in our marriages. Because Jesus wants to work in our home. If we can't get, how, if I can't love Mary, then how am I supposed to love my enemy? If I can't endure in my faithfulness to a woman that I started out, you know, head over heels in love with romantically and wanting to connect with her and wanting to live the rest of my life, if I can't make it with her, then how can I make it with you when you walk in my office and I hardly even know you and you've just smoked marijuana for the 20th time and I'm trying to get you to turn to Christ? How can I love you? How can I help you? How can I believe that there can be resurrection power to help a drug addict not be a drug addict anymore? If as we sit here today, we can't even get along as brothers and sisters. And I want to close with this. I want you to know that I believe we can get along. And I want you to believe that Jesus can give us an eternal covenant love that will last forever. And I want to tell you why. Like, I have been married 34, going on 35 years. And Jesus has helped me to be a covenant partner. I love Mary more today than I loved her at a stupid 19-year-old meeting her. And Jesus reminds me every week, David, it's not about you. It's not about your feelings. And it's not about how you feel that Mary's helping you. You made a promise, Dave Wurtson. And by my grace and by my love, you keep it. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I said before you, that is not an option in my life. Mary's brother, Frank, spoke at Mary's dad's funeral. And a lot of you might have forgotten it, but Frank said this. He said many things about his dad. 
But one of the most powerful things about Dad Van Campen that Mary's brother said is my dad, Arthur Van Campen, showed me what it meant to be a one-woman man, a Christ-like, godly husband devoted to one woman. And in his 80s, when Janae Wurtzman was wandering away, Janae and I are writing a book about a, a tough experience she had in New York. And his romantic love, all the pride and prejudice, the false kind of lover, a very powerful model from New York, handsome, brilliant, you know, the big apple kind of a guy, pulling her away. She went in before her granddad and heard her grandfather that was going in and out of consciousness and in and out of sanity. She heard her grandfather tell Mom Van Camp on the phone, Honey, I love you. I love you more than ever. And Janae wrote in the book that we were just finishing up, Janae wrote, I realized this guy in New York would never be taking care of my dad when he was sick. Because I had just spent a whole night keeping dad in bed and cleaning up his excrement and a lot of other stuff. And Janae suddenly realized the man that I'm being pulled into a false relationship was not going to be there when it really counts. And that began to wake her up began to cause her to realize what life is all about. I want you to leave this room, and I want you to ask yourself, what am I in this for? Who defines marriage? Who defines relationships? Brothers and sisters in the Metroplex, we have forgotten that it's about God is the home builder. It begins with a covenant. The most important question for you to ask is, is this person a born-again believer? And are they living close to the Lord? Let's pray. Lord, I want little babies in our church to have moms and dads that are in love with Jesus and they'll be there throughout their entire life. I want teenagers to be able to have the joy of what Mary and I have experienced. And the cool thing it does is you raise kids. Kids really need a dad and mom. They don't need two women. They don't need two men. They don't need one man or one woman. They need a godly husband and wife. And I pray, Lord, that our young people would let your Holy Spirit speak to them about that. I want to ask you, Lord, for members of our church family that haven't lived out the kind of biblical ideal that I've talked about. Help them to understand that we're a forgiving place. That we're a place filled with grace. But what resurrection power means is that we can now go from this present time. We can ask forgiveness for this messed up problem from the past. But today we can really reaffirm what it means to have a covenant, a divine covenant of love. What it really means to be a triangle of love that moves towards intimacy with you. And I want to ask you, Lord, that as we, as we begin to recapture these eternal values from the book of Malachi and the book of Ephesians, that there be a powerful moving of your spirit. As a pastor and teacher, Lord, I pray that I won't be guilty of these ancient priests that just taught your people their own ideas. Help me to teach your people your ideas and your guidance and help Mary and I to to live it and protect us. Help us to finish strong and to be good examples. Lord, help us to show this precious church family that your gift of love and the picture it is of Christ in the church is a beautiful, holy thing. So precious that we need to honor it so beautifully today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.